0: When we're considering the existentialist movement in a somewhat narrowed, restricted, and you might say even technical range, as Albert Camus is using the term, or in a broader sense that would include Camus himself within the existentialist movement and spectrum, one of the key figures that's going to come up is that of the novelist and short story writer Franz Kafka. And Camus actually devotes an entire appendix to. To Kafka's works at the end of the myth of Sisyphus, entitled Hope and the Absurd in the Work of Franz Kafka. And the title is important. Hope is going to be what leads away from the orientation toward the absurd that Camus himself is advocating in this work and which he thinks that existentialists in the sense that he's using the term are indulging in. They're moving away from the kind of brutal assessments of the world and human beings that we should instead remain with. And so the question then is whether the work of Kafka understood as sort of a proxy for who Kafka himself is, is that work absurd or not? Is he absurdist? Is he existentialist? What should we make of his work? And there's two different seemingly contradictory assessments built into this chapter. And so on a first or superficial reading, somebody might get a little bit confused. He says at a certain point, I recognize here a work that is absurd in its principles. So Kafka's work is absurd, right? But then a bit later in considering the castle and the the importance of that, he says, I shall speak like him and say that his work is probably not absurd. So, you know, you can say, well, one is saying it definitely is. The other is saying it's probably not. That's not, you know, the same degree of certainty or assertion. No, he is actually saying that Kafka's work is absurd in one sense and fails or leaves behind the absurd by the way it handles the absurd in another sense and thereby quits being absurd although it is still existentialist by the way that Camus is using this term in a more restricted Meaning and he's essentially saying that Kafka fits into those authors that he considered earlier on in the work as engaging in philosophical suicide by making the leap, by hoping for something, by turning the absurd into God. And you notice that his reading here is entirely predicated on a certain way of arranging the development and the meaning of Kafka's works. So, you know, what works does he actually discuss here? Very briefly, the metamorphosis. Actually, not quite so briefly. He discusses, you know, Gregor Sampson as the salesman and why that's important and his annoyance rather than horror at finding himself in the situation that he's in he devotes quite a lot of space to the trial and even more so to the castle he also does mention in a footnote in the the penal colony so he's not actually considering the entire range of Kafka's works here and he's treating the castle as if it is the essentially the end point where Kafka's work culminates and all the other stuff is before that so there's a kind of developmental reading going on here that you know I think even Camus himself would say this is not the only way to arrange it there's no absolute necessity of framing Kafka's work in this way but it does allow him to engage in the kind of project that he wants to do in this appendix which is to say look on the one hand this is absurd work in its principles and we're going to look at those principles and the absurdity of it and the artistry that goes into it that Camus himself is, is quite attuned to on the other there's this wrong or inconsistent treatment of the absurd that is embodied within the work the the castle and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment so He starts out by examining the absurdity in Kafka's work. And in the first section, he says that we're going to get a closed world. It it, it ends at that point before the the switch to talking about the, the castle. And he begins by saying the whole art of Kafka consists in forcing the reader to reread. So we're always engaged in Kafka's works. When we're reading them properly, when we're not just skimming them or checking them out so that we can fit them into some other project. When we're reading them as works, They make us go back. And the rereading is a a duplication. He's going to speak here of ambiguity. And we might actually say that there's a bit of a, a play on words here. Because there's ambiguities that Camus is discussing here. So even the word ambiguity is ambiguous here. Which ambiguity is it referring to? So he talks about symbols. And here, you know, we want to be a little bit careful. Don't read in too much coming from somewhere else about symbols. Look at what Camus actually says here in the text. He tells us that a symbol is always in general and however precise its translation, an artist can restore to it only its movement. There is no word for word rendering. Nothing is harder to understand than a symbolic work. A symbol transcends the one who makes use of it, Kafka, his characters, and makes him say in reality more than he is aware of expressing. So then he says, the surest means of getting hold of it is not to provoke it, to begin the work without a preconceived attitude and not to look for its hidden current. So the natural tendency when we talk about symbols is we, oh, what's going on here? What's the secret thing that only I know or only my my pals know? Camus saying don't do that. Just read the Kafka and see what happens in the stories. Enter the world of the characters that has been created here. And a little bit later, he says the symbols here. It's hard to speak of a symbol in a tale whose most obvious quality just happens to be naturalness. And then a little bit later on, he tells us that the the worlds are brought together, or symbols, the, the symbol brings together two planes, two worlds of ideas and sensations, and a dictionary of correspondences between them. And he says this lexicon is the hardest thing to draw up. As a matter of fact, he's speaking hyperbolically of a lexicon here. Don't use a lexicon. Go through it, see what's actually happening. And he says, awakening to the two worlds brought face to face is tantamount to getting on the trail of their secret relationships. What are these two worlds? These two worlds, these two planes, are that of everyday life and supernatural anxiety, he says. Then there's an interesting little footnote here where he says there's other ways to read this as well. The works of Kafka can quite as legitimately be interpreted in sense of social criticism. And then he says it's probable there's no real need to choose. Both interpretations are good. And this is something that we could explore at at much greater length in Camus, but We've got two planes there. It could be that of everyday life and then social criticism. It could everyday life, supernatural anxiety. I think probably the best example of this is in the trial where we discover that the attics of all of these places in town are secretly, but actually not secretly, the locus of the law courts. That was a symbol that always gripped me so much about Kafka, and I think that matches this Perfectly. There's also, I mentioned ambiguity and Camus talks about a fundamental ambiguity in which lies Kafka's secret. And in the section where he uses those terms, he, he lays out several of these ambiguities. He says there's perpetual oscillations between the natural and the extraordinary. So that's one of the ambiguities going back and forth is an oscillation. The individual and the universal, the tragic and the everyday, the absurd and the logical. And these are found throughout his work and give it both its resonance, the way it feels, you could say, the way it sounds, and its meaning. Its meaning lies in these ambiguities. Now that's a paradoxical way to talk. And here he says, these are the paradoxes that must be enumerated, the contradictions that must be, now notice what he says here. He doesn't, the contradictions that must be explained away, the contradictions that must be understood. No, the contradictions that must be strengthened in order to understand the absurd work. So in order to understand any absurd work, we have to look at this, but it's even more so important with Kafka. A little bit earlier, he talks about the characters are being dragged off into the pursuit of problems they never formulate. And this fits in well with the next thing that he points out as well about consistency. And he brings up a a kind of funny joke which we'll get into in a moment, says if Kafka wants to express the absurd, he will make use of consistency. And this is something that I think has been trivialized in in many ways. You know, people try to imitate Kafka, but they don't always pull it off. Some people do, but they don't always pull it off because following out the logic Kafka's characters follow along paths that they have not themselves made. That's part of their confrontation with the absurd world, the world also of others who seem to inhabit this better than them, but may not, may may fall into the abyss at any moment. And you're constantly finding out in Kafka's world as one of his characters that some sort of decision was made that basically undid what you were doing well in advance of it And without even really caring about it. So, you know, you'll fill out the paperwork and then find out, oh, there was another form that you should have gotten. And this has to be notarized. And, oh, it's too late for that now. That's just one example. Now, he's got this great passage here. He says, you know the story of the crazy man who was fishing in a bathtub. A doctor with ideas as to psychiatric treatments asked him if they were biting, if the fish are biting in the bathtub. And to which he received the harsh reply, of course not, you fool. This is a bathtub. And he says it can be grasped quite clearly to what a degree the absurd effect is linked to an excess of logic, an excess of logic, too much logic, too much logic in the wrong place, perhaps. And he says Kafka's world is in truth an indescribable universe in which man allows himself the tormenting luxury of fishing in a bathtub, knowing nothing will come of it. So this, again, is pointing towards Kafka's works as essentially being absurd, but only up to a certain point, because now we bring in the trial and its relationship to the castle. In the next section, in the appendix, Camus tells us that this world is not as closed as it seems. In this universe devoid of progress, Kafka is going to introduce hope in a strange form. So it's not straightforward hope. The characters do hope for things, right? But then their hopes are disappointed. But there's hope on a secondary level, we can say. Almost you could call it meta-hope. Hope Hope in the face of the absurd. Hope through the absurd. And this is what Camus is criticizing in Kafka's works and also rejecting for, for himself. So he tells us that the trial propounds a problem which the castle, to a certain degree, solves. The first describes according to a quasi-scientific method and without concluding. The second, to a certain degree, explains. The trial diagnoses. The castle imagines a treatment. But the remedy proposed here does not cure. So it's not so simple as, well, I, you know, came up with the key ideas and hit an impasse, and then the next book deals with that and solves the problem. The way we might imagine, you know, like a science fiction series, which raises a new existential threat existential in the sense of like can destroy you, but it could also be existential in the sense of meaning brought about by some new alien race that was even bigger and badder than the, the previous one. And then in the next book, you, you you take care of them. No, this isn't like that. It's it's arranged in a different way. So he goes on and he says, it brings the malady back into normal life. It helps to accept it. And this is, this is what Camus has the fundamental problem with. So he'll talk about the deification of the absurd. He'll talk about hope and the leap. And, you know, these are the terms that, as I mentioned, were worked out by him in terms of the other existentialists. And he's going to bring up Kierkegaard here, Shestov, Jaspers, all these people he's brought up before. And he's saying that Kafka in the castle is allowing himself to be drawn down that path. So he he summarizes what's going on in the castle. He says few works are more rigorous in their development. Kay is named land surveyor to the castle. He arrives in the village. And what we find is that it's impossible to communicate with the castle. So he can't do his job. And he he becomes obsessed with this idea of gaining access to the castle. And a lot of people have interpreted this. Well, the castle is God. The castle is the kingdom of heaven. The castle is, is this and that, right? Some sort of reconciliation where all of our hopes and dreams can be pinned on and It's going to make everything right. And he tries, you know, trick after trick after trick. He says, Those inspired automatic Kafka's characters provide us with a precise image of what we would be if we were deprived of our distractions and utterly consigned to the humiliations of the divine. And he says, In the castle, that surrender to the everyday becomes an ethic. So we see this invocation, right, of again, two planes. Everyday life, the situations that we're in, in which we act, and then this supernatural anxiety, this, this wish to have things resolved to figure out once and for all what the the whole point of it is. And he, you know, he goes through trying to go through this intermediary, this intermediary, moving towards the Barnabas sisters, which seems to be going in the wrong direction, but actually, you know, fits into the the entire theory. He says that the path pursued by Kafka's hero from Frida to the Barnabas sisters is the very one that leads from trusting love to the deification of the absurd. Here again Kafka's thought runs parallel to Kierkegaard, right? It's not surprising the Barnabas story is placed at the end of the work. And he says the land surveyor's last attempt is to recapture God through what negates him to recognize him not according to our categories of goodness and beauty, but behind the empty and hideous aspects of this indifference, his injustice, his hatred. The stranger who asked the castle to adopt him is at the end of his voyage a little more exiled because this time he is unfaithful to himself, forsaking morality, logic, and intellectual truths in order to try to enter the desert of divine grace. And here Camus is going to say, this is embracing the absurd, but in the wrong way. How so? Through hope. And he says, the word hope is not ridiculous. The more tragic the condition, the firmer and more aggressive that hope becomes. The more truly absurd the trial is, the more moving and illegitimate, notice that term, illegitimate the impassioned leap of the castle seems. And he says, we find again in a pure state the paradox of existential thought as it is expressed by Kierkegaard. And, you know, he goes on and says, One has to have written the trial to undertake the castle. We could also say, similarly with Kierkegaard, as Kierkegaard tells us in Fear and Trembling, you can't be the knight of faith without having gone through infinite resignation. An infinite resignation is is more like what Camus is advocating here in The Myth of Sisyphus, right? So we've got this leap going on. We don't have to go further with this, I think. Other than to say that, what what do Kafka, Kierkegaard, and Shestov, or as he says, those in short of existentialist novelists and philosophers completely oriented towards the absurd and its consequences, what makes them do this hope path? He says, they embrace the God that consumes them. It's through humility that hope enters in. And Camus says, no, no, that's not the, the route that, an absurdist, as opposed to an existentialist, ought to be taking. So he thinks, he talks here about infidelity, and he says that the absurd work can lead to an infidelity that he himself, Camus, wants to avoid, and that is what is going on in the castle. So, you know, what do we have with Kafka? We have a a writer and his work, the body expressing his stuff that is definitely worth reading, definitely worth checking out, Absurd in its principles, absurd actually in much of the literature that composes it, just not absurd in this one particular work that Camus chooses to make central as Kafka's endpoint, the, the castle. And I suppose you, you could say, why not? Why shouldn't that work be the endpoint? Last thing I want to bring up here is he talks about nobility and universality. And here, as we're reading this section, this is towards the the end. He says, you see what tradition of thought Kafka's work takes its place. And then he says, I'll say his work is probably absurd, but that should not deter us from seeing its nobility and universality. It's tempting to blur those together. Oh, this is great. You know, Camus is saying that Kafka's work is still good. We have to consider what he means here by these two terms. It's precisely because it's universal Camus thinks that it cannot remain absurd. He tells us his work is universal. A really absurd work is not universal to the extent to which it represents the emotionally moving face of man fleeing humanity, deriving from his contradictions, reasons for believing, reasons for hoping from his fecund despairs, calling life his terrifying apprenticeship in death. It is universal because its inspiration is religious. So Camus not saying that this universality is a good thing here. He's saying that's actually one of its 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 problems. And when we read, you know, it's, it's a commonplace to say, oh, you know, any one of us could be Gregor Samsa. Yeah, any one of us could be Gregor Samsa. That doesn't make him the proverbial every man, right? Likewise, you know, oh, he doesn't name his, his characters. He's just got K and Joseph K. They're supposed to be a stand-in for any one of us. Yes and no. His universality is a straying away from the absurd. And he also talks about nobility. And this is something really quite interesting about Camus. He believes that within the absurd existence that we have, a world that you know, doesn't map on to our own desires and rationality, this divorce between us that we call the absurd, this triadic relation, that it's still possible for human beings to have nobility. It's not, however, by being a universal. It is by you know, resisting, by rebelling, by continually going on, by lingering in the absurd and refusing to make the leap that would somehow make it all make sense, refusing to hope. And you notice that he brings in another thinker here. He tells us that... This particular view will be better understood if I say the truly hopeless thought just happens to be defined by the opposite criteria and that the tragic work might be the work that, after all, future hope is exiled, describes the life of a happy man. Happiness and nobility are also connected here. He says, the more exciting life is, the more absurd is the idea of losing it. This is perhaps the secret of the proud aridity felt in Nietzsche's work In this connection, Nietzsche appears to be the only artist to have derived the extreme consequences of an aesthetic of the absurd, right? So why bring in Nietzsche at that point? Because Camus is saying, at least on this point, I mean, there's plenty of other points where I don't agree with him. Nietzsche and I are in agreement and Kafka is over there with Shestov and Kierkegaard and these other essentially religious existentialist thinkers, He goes on and he says one other thing about nobility. If nostalgia is the mark of the human, perhaps no one has given such flesh and volume to these phantoms of of regret as Kafka has. But at the same time, will be sensed what exceptional nobility the absurd work calls for, which is perhaps not found here in Kafka's work. The nobility that Camus is... You know, if there's anything really positive in Camus' ethics being worked out here, it's this concept of nobility. Elsewhere, he talks about decency and some other values that he thinks are possible to have. Kafka's works ultimately don't have that for Camus. So this is a very interesting assessment coming at the end of his work that ties together a number of threads that have been running throughout it and shows you what Camus is is making of this very important existentialist author. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page.